It's all about Australia's favourite obsession, property. G'day and thanks for joining me. My name's Jeremy Cannon and we're here to talk all things property. See, this podcast is about how everybody loves property. We buy it, we sell it, we touch it every day of our lives. In fact, in Australia, investing in property is almost like a sport. So today, to talk about the sport of investing, I have a very special guest. From Examine Property, I've got Omar Mujali. Omar, welcome. G'day, Jeremy. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Omar. Now, Omar, you are the owner and a principal of Examine Property, a research-based property and investment firm. And this puts you in a really uh, powerful position that you not only get to invest yourself, but you also get to see uh, and and integrate um, with a lot of other investors. And so you get to see both sides of the story. You get to see you know the, the transition that people make putting their portfolios together. And I wanted to kick it off by asking you, what is the biggest mistake that investors make when they come to property? Um, oh, the biggest mistake, probably um, not getting good advice, I'd say. Um, whether it's through uh, a buyer's agent or someone, um, a vendor's agent, just um, getting really poor advice um, onto you know in regards to what they're buying and um, whether it's the right fit and right type of property that they should be buying for their individual circumstances. It's a really hard one, isn't it? Because I mean that's part of the whole purpose of this podcast is that. Is to to you know let people or show people that at the end of the day we all have an affiliation to property. We touch and feel it. We live with it every day. We think that we understand it, and yet there's a lot of things about property that um, uh, you know, that, that we just don't understand, aren't there? And it's a very emotive asset um, that we often make you know quite poor decisions when it comes to property investments. Uh, definitely, and also the usually the people you're talking to. Um, when it comes to investment, don't understand um, what makes a good investment property, what works, um, where to buy, what to buy, when to buy. There's no real qualifications um, in terms of uh, you know property investment advice. Um, and then people also sort of mix it up um, where you know comparing it to the types of property they live in and what they look for when they're looking for an owner-occupied uh, property. It's a lot of different fundamentals that you need to consider. When it comes to investment, let's just grab that one right there because, as I said, Examine Property is a property investment firm. So, by definition, you're looking for property investments. Um, what is the difference? You know, when when people tend to buy property, they tend to buy, as you said, you know, something that they want to live in. Um, what's the difference between buying a, an investment property to that of an owner occupier place? Um, the main difference is you need to buy what the people in that area want to live in. So a lot of people make the mistake um, in buying a you know, type of property that they'd like to live in or that suits their household size. Um, you need to look at you know, what the demographic is in that area that you're targeting. What do they want, especially the owner occupiers? Because yes, you are an investor for the time being. You want it to be rented. You don't want vacancy. You want rental growth. You want tenants that are going to look after your property. But eventually, um, if you want to sell it, um, or if you want to enjoy the growth of that particular type of property, you need to buy what owner-occupiers in that area want to buy to live in. Um, and we've seen recently um, during certain times the banks might restrict investor lending or investors just aren't in the market. You know, the only people 
buying property at that particular time will be owner occupied. So you need to appeal to them, not just um, the investor market. So the emotion side of it too, um, as I said, property is a very emotive sort of asset. Do you find that um, often investors have trouble distancing their emotions to the property purchase? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, it's very um, emotive, as you said. Also, it's a very large purchase. So um, that in itself um, will drive emotion. I find a lot of people, when they're buying a car, will be more emotive than you know, when they're buying um, you know, a, a CD player or, or something um, a lot less um, in value. So the, the larger value... I think you've just given away your age there, Omar. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> no spring chicken. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the emotion comes in. Uh, the larger the purchase, obviously, the more the higher the stress levels. You know, am I doing the right thing, wrong thing? You know, and, um, you know, the emotion sort of comes into it just, just from the, the price point. Um, also, again, property is something that we use every day. Um, you know, we work in it, we live in it, you know, we visit people, you know, we're attending restaurants, everything is, uh, a lot of business is conducted and lifestyle is conducted in in property. So it is very, very emotive. And well, Jeremy, what, what I found recently, like the last sort of three, four years is that um, I'm finding more and more people um, that have realised they've got to take the emotion out of it. Um, whereas, you know, five, ten years ago, it was still very, very uh, emotive. Now they realise, look, this is an investment. It's different fundamentals to what I look like to live in. Tell me where, you know, oh, and what should I be doing and, and where and what and how um, for investment. So I think that's slowly um, changing. Um, I think it's due to the information and education and the internet and, and people starting to do um, their own research. Do you think also, I mean, a lot of the uh, clients that you deal with um, are repeat clients. So certainly when someone has purchased or gone through the purchase of uh, one investment property and they get it under their belt and they understand the process, they understand what it's like to be a landlord, that buying a second or a third, you know, they they, they can, you know, there's, there's, there's less excitement, there's less nervousness, um, there's less, you know, emotion attached to to the uh, the transaction uh, definitely itself. that's um, something that we find once they've been through the process I guess that comes down also to trust and trust in um, not just the, the relationship but also the type of property and the result that they've got from that um, transaction so um, yeah it makes it a lot easier more familiar they understand what they need to be looking at what they need to be considering um, differently to when they're you know buying their own place to live um, yeah, definitely makes it a lot, 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 lot easier. I've had clients just want to buy a property over the phone uh, after a five-minute call. So, um, whereas, mm. yeah, so they, um, I think it's got to do with trust, trust in the, the people, and trust in the process. So, what is it then, Omar, that separates investors who can accumulate large portfolios to those who can't? Is it you know, is it based around their income or the fact that those who have large portfolios inherit a lot of money? Um, is it investor psychology? Um, you know, people just want to take action. Um, they're risk takers. Um, you know, what is it that stops people? Because I saw this very interesting statistic that, that showed that it was less than 2% um, of property investors actually get to four or more properties, which I found absolutely astounding. 
I think there's a variety of factors um, in that, um, Jeremy. It's uh, like income is important, but it's not the be all, uh, end all. Um, I've heard of and known people that were just on sort of basic um, salaries that immigrated from overseas and slowly over time accumulated a fairly large portfolio on not too significant income. And then you've got other people that earn maybe a million dollars a year that are partners in law firms that you know, have the boats and the yachts and the expensive toys and, and never even get to own and, and occupy a property, let alone uh, investments, always highly leveraged spending. Um, so it's more what, what you do with the money rather than um, purely just the amount of money you earn. Um, but it's nice to to have more so you can invest more. Um, yep. I think a lot of that comes to poor investments. A lot of people, um, I can't remember the statistics, but a lot sell within the first three to five years, which generally tells you they've, they've made a mistake, bought in the wrong area, properties um, declined in value. Um, it's important to get capital growth because with leverage, you're limited to what you can you can borrow. So if that property, you know, you bought a property, hasn't gone back backwards, but you've held it for 10 years and hasn't hasn't gone up, it doesn't create that equity for you to accumulate the next one. So I think timing, um, besides all the other factors in getting the right location, suburb, right type of property for that suburb, uh, quality, all, all that, that sort of helps you with your capital growth. But I think timing the market um, is very um, important to building larger long-term portfolios. We'll come back to that one in a, in a little bit. What about the role that people's psychology um, plays with regards to the level of debt? Because one of the issues that we have with property is it is a very lumpy asset. Um, unlike shares where, you know, you can buy or sell, you know, one or two or a couple of hundred or whatever it might be, um, getting a couple of thousand bucks worth, you know, property, you can't do that. They're lumpy transactions. So to go from one property to two to three to four um, ends up, you know, having high levels of debt. And a lot of people struggle, um, you know, from, from my observation that they can struggle with those high levels of, of debt. Uh, definitely. I think um, from the perspective of, of considering what type of debt, so if you're buying quality investments um, and it's uh, obviously tax deductible on, on top of that, um, you know, good good debt that's returning your result is easier to bear than um, debt that doesn't get you um, the result that, that you're looking for. So um, no one likes, I don't think anyone um loves debt. I think other some people um, handle a lot, a lot better by making um, better decisions around it. Um, people that go and spend on their credit cards and personal loans and, and accumulating that type of debt makes it um, very difficult um, for them. And um, yeah, so it's, I guess it's up to individual circumstances, what, what you're doing with that, with that debt becomes very important. It is interesting though, isn't it, that how often you see, you know, someone's happy to um, owe money on a car and yet you look at the car repayment levels compared to what it would actually cost them to hold um, a geared property when you have uh, the deductions um, and depreciation, et cetera, addbacks, et cetera, um, that often a, you know, a half a million dollar property can actually cost an out of you know dollar um, or out of pocket expense much much less than what a car would and yet people are happier with the you know 50 or eighty thousand dollar purchase of a car um, on finance and and less happy with the you know half million dollar property uh, 
that's pretty common. I think they view the car as essential. Um, they need it. Um, you know, you don't need a $200,000 car. You can get around in a $10,000 car. But, um, yeah, people just view it as essential, something that they're, um, you know, seeing, using every every day, um, whereas sort of property is something that sort of sits there. And, um, yes, you do own it, but, um, you know, it's something for the, for the future. So it's... Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. You're dealing with a variety of different um, considerations that people make and attitudes to um, you know, what what they want to spend their money on. But you're you're de- you're, re- you're dead right. Um, a property you know with a loan and that probably could give you positive cash flow where it's not costing you anything. Whereas definitely the car because it's a depreciating asset, um, you get significant loss in value over the first um, three four years. Uh, on top of that, but um, yeah, it does make sense for for people to to put their money to better use, or at least a portion of their money to better use to build um, funds for their future. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's October twenty twenty, and um, you know, in Australia, you know, rates are so low, um, and yields on properties, um, you know, are, are are significant um, that it actually is quite difficult, um, especially you know with a with a with a well structured um, purchase to actually um, um, get a negatively geared property now, isn't it? Yeah, very difficult, and that's why when I go through cash flows with clients, I say, look, I'm no genius. It's just rates are really low um, at the moment, and if you look in the right areas, you know, rental returns can be you know fairly significant as well. So, um, and if they're buying something with some depreciation. Obviously, the cash flow looks even even better. Um, so yeah, it doesn't take a, a genius. And I even for owner occupiers, like um, you know, sometimes I look at people like, why are you renting? Um, and they really want to buy a property, and that's what they want to do to live in. And it's just you know, the money's very cheap at the moment. Obviously, over the long term, that that could change and probably will. Um, but at the moment, yes. it's yeah, very significantly uh, affordable. And as an investor. Yes, rates are low, but they will go up. But so will will your rent um, to cover that moving forward. So, yeah, it's it's really that's something that some people I, I find that amazing too. That um, you know when you look at those cash flows, you know they they're so typically presented that you get um, a compound um, growth on the um, uh, on the growth of the asset, but they will just CPI the um, uh, the rental return, yeah. so that the yields actually um, actually get completely skewed in those cash flows at the end of them. And I'm not a big believer in cash flows at, at the best of times because, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Um, you can make them look what they ever, whatever they want. But I just find it really interesting that I mean, over the long term, um, you know, the the rent will be, um, you know, it'll basically be set by the yield of the property, won't it? Uh, pretty much, yeah. It'll it'll come back in line. Like Australia wide, it's probably around the 4 4.4% long term um, but then you're skewing areas where you might not get a lot of uh, capital appreciation like regional areas so yes they are getting a, a nice rent return but that's that's not growing in line to what happens in the capital city so um, yeah they'll they'll grow but um, when you're producing a cash flow like for ourselves we have to um, sort of just stick to conservative figures so we just use um, sort of a 3% uh, inflation rate um, Maybe a four, four and a half is is more um, feasible, but um, we're trying to be conservative, not over promise. Um, 
Um, just yeah, just if it works on sort of three percent rental growth, then then great. If they're getting five six percent, which is probably um, maybe even higher over the long term in the in the better suburbs around the sea, you know, around the city where the jobs are, um, but even even better. When was it, Omar, that you discovered that you had a passion for property? Oh, probably twenty years ago, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> when my father made me buy my first property, which was the house behind <laughs> behind them. Um, passion by force. Yeah, before that, <laughs> you were told that you were going to be passionate. Yeah, it about was. It. I was. That was um, twenty twenty one years ago, actually. So I was twenty four years old, young accountant. Um, you know, sort of three, four years out of university, uh, 10 grand credit card debt, 10 grand personal loan, living the, the fancy life, enjoying myself. And my father just said, you know, you can't keep going like this. You have to buy um, a property. And the easiest one for them was sort of the house house behind them. Um, and that was in 1999, um, settled around October 99, just before the Olympics. Um, yeah, and... That's and sort of ticked off my interest in in property. Um, I was an accountant at the time. I studied a business degree. Um, you know, majored in accounting. Uh, did a few subjects, micro macroeconomic sort of policy. Had an interest um, in economics as well. Um, and yeah, I was probably more interested in shares back then. That was around the um, tech boom or just. Just after everyone it. was interested in uh, shares in the tech boom, weren't they? <laughs> they were. I never really, to be honest with you, I just, um, I never took the plunge into the tech boom. But I, and then I saw a lot of friends. I had a friend that worked at the RBA, lost, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. I had a guy that worked with me when I was the accountant at Dairy Farmers. He was one of the product managers, young guy that moved from Melbourne. He was all investing in tech. And then I watched all these people lose money and I thought, oh, <laughs> Lucky, I, um, my analytical brain. I just couldn't believe that these $1 companies were worth uh, producing no income. So the accounting sort of brain came into it. Um, and that sort of ticked off. I bought this property. And, and to be honest with you, the first, because I bought when Sydney or that part of Sydney around, I bought in Auburn, uh, which is next to Homebush, Olympic Park, yeah, okay. um, a few suburbs away. And that had already boomed. So I bought my first property. It cost me two forty eight thousand five hundred, and I'll never forget that because my lending limit was two hundred fifty thousand, so another fifteen hundred dollars at the auction, and I would have had to pass on that on that property. So, um, and the agent estimate at the time was probably about two twenty. Um, I probably could have bought it prior to auction for that, um, but you know, a few couple of years before, three four three years before, I could probably get that property for like one sixty. So I sort of bought at the top of the market in that area. Um, and then in sort of 2001, 2000, the rest of sort of Sydney started booming and my property was just, you know, that suburb was just sitting flat and I'm like, oh, what have I done? Have I bought in the wrong area? Should I have bought the house by my parents? Um, so for the first couple of years, two, three years, it really didn't move. And then it sort of had a jump again um, up to sort of about 2004, five, and it probably was worth probably five 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 fifty at one stage, and then by two thousand and seven, it had dropped to four hundred thousand because I actually got a stamp duty valuation um, because the conveyance was stuffed up and and um, put my parents um, uh, instead of putting in one percent, they put the property one third in each name. So when my dad oh, passed okay. away, his share 
sort of went half to my mum, half to me. So my mum ended up owning half my property. Um, <laughs> like being so I got it valued. <laughs> <laughs> and she just didn't want the headache. She said, you know, I've got brothers and, you know, if they get married or whatever yes. and, you know, something goes am- amiss and then they, you know, ex-wives come claiming, um, you know, they're one-third in her half half share. And um, so she just encouraged me to to pay the stamp duty. So it cost me, I think, about eight ten thousand dollars back then. Um, got a stamp duty vow. Um, came in around four hundred thousand. It was could probably conservative. Might have been worth a little bit more. Um, yeah, paid my mum out, and and then it just started to go sideways, and then lift, and into sort of two thousand and um, nine, eight, nine is probably worth around the five hundred mark. And with the Sydney boom, uh, it's probably worth nine hundred to a million. At the moment, and I'm actually looking at, at selling <laughs> at selling it. So in 20 years, I've made four times my money um, in terms of what I paid and and what it's worth now. So um, that was working, my first it? property. It does, and if I timed it better, it probably would have been worth <laughs> maybe it's, five, six it's, times. Uh, you know. It's a great example, though, Omar, um, of a of a lot of things. Actually, I mean, the the first thing when you said. With regard to the timing of the purchase, um, that you know, one of the things that we look at is uh, the infrastructure spends, and obviously with the Olympics, there was huge infrastructure projects that were brought forward um, to ensure that um, you know Sydney was ready for the Olympics, which obviously is going to manifest back into the land price. That I mean, you're absolutely right. You're you know probably 24 months too late um, in an area that had already capitalised on the uh, infrastructure spends. Yeah, most of it was already um, just on the announcement, sort of the, and once the infrastructure started to get constructed, the prices did significantly go up in that in that area. So my parents benefited, obviously, um, and I just bought sort of towards um, the back end of that. And it also shows too that um, despite what um, any projected growth is put in front of you, that um, you know, property like any other asset doesn't move in a linear fashion. Um, no. That there are ups and downs. There's times when a really good property can sit um, flat uh, and not move, and then all of a sudden it can move very quickly. Um, you know, making up time pretty quickly, can't it? Definitely, it can uh, rocket. And I remember my property within sort of three, three, four years, it doubled in value um, very quickly. So it doesn't move in a linear fashion, and it came back it was worth probably 550 at one stage came back down to sort of the 400 mark um so yeah you have years of no growth you've had you have years of significant growth and you have um, years when it pulls back but over the long term generally um you know obviously most good areas um you know it'd be doubling at least every sort of 10 years was property was property a subject that um uh, the Mojali spoke about over the kitchen table at dinner. Yeah, look, my parents were very intelligent. Obviously, um, sort of migrated here, had to escape a civil war, so they didn't have the opportunity to go to university and and whatnot. But my dad, um, like all ethnics, it's all about like the Greeks and the Italians that came, and and now a lot of the people coming from Asia and the subcontinent. It's all they're very property centric. Um, that makes a lot of sense, though, that- when you when you're escaping a civil war. To be able to own and um, you know touch and feel the dirt to give security 
Um, you know, I, I can understand, you know, why there's such a, a drive to own, um, to own their own piece of land. Yeah, definitely. And also, um, it's a cult, like cultural in terms of the way they live. So you grow up in a village, you know, you all, you know, your brothers and sisters all live and generally you live with the grandparents and then your parents get a piece of their property or they build on the same land next to them. Yes. And it's just that intergenerational sort of, um, some of it's transfer, obviously the lazy ones don't go out and buy their own, but um, you find that's what happens. And anytime you're selling a property overseas, it's always someone from the village's son that, that wants to buy it. So um, they just see that transition through the generations um, of property and very property-centric um, um, as well, especially in um, those that come from sort of the, the village areas. Some of the city dwellers obviously live in apartments and you know, a lot of them rent and um, not a, not as much um, centric around property, but people from the villages and the farms and sort of the rural regional areas um, overseas that, that come in definitely have a massive affiliation um, to property. And a lot of them I find, like my dad helped me, I had no deposit. So he put the house up as security, made me do it. And within 12 months, I you know, was paying the house off. I paid off my credit card. I paid off my personal loan and, and started to accumulate for my next property investment. And that sort of cultural forcing you're buying the house and he was at the auction and hitting me in the ribs and bid yeah. and there was another <laughs> yeah, bloke bidding against me and and my mum was, was having a heart attack the stare and <laughs> stop stop and my dad's like nah whatever it's worth to him it's worth to us more because it's behind us and one day we'll build townhouses and one day we'll do this and and 20 years later I still can't build townhouses still can't do that but um, it was the best thing he ever did. And, you know, my dad, like he passed away about a year later, but he went in there, he repainted it for me, um, you know, sanded the floorboards with me, got it ready to rent, you know, did all the maintenance and and my uncle came in, my mum's brother, and tiled it for me. And, you know, we sort of patched up the kitchen and changed a few things and just got it ready for rent. So that was it's not a just, great family it wasn't exercise, just a, the renovation, isn't it? I've... I've I've really oh, enjoyed that. I look back at, um, um, I don't know whether I quite want to do it myself now, but at the same sort of yeah. age as yourself, um, you know, renovating houses and mum and dad coming and helping, mum painting and, you know, dad helped me all, doing all sorts of stuff. Um, and, you know, it's a great... It's good. Yeah, it's a great, you know, bonding sort of uh, a session, isn't it? It's it, it's a lot of fun. Especially for office workers. I The house that I live in at the moment, I'm... Um, just moving at the moment to another place. But um, 13, 14 years ago, I was working at American Express corporate job and every evening, weekends, took me over a year to do it, but I did everything except obviously put the kitchen in and um, the tile, but I did the waterproofing. I knocked out walls. I yeah. painted us, you know, did, you know, ripped yeah. up the everything, like basically gutted the place and, um, and redid it all, all myself. Would I do it now? Probably not because, <laughs> you know, it's just done it before, never want to do it again. But um, the age of your children, I reckon another 15 years' time, you'll, you'll have that sledgehammer back in your hands. Yeah, I'll, I'll go through And I've got all these tools. My wife's like, toss them out. You're like, you're not using them as much. I'm like, no, no, no. You know, just the new house we moved into, like uh, the built-in, she wanted to put extra extra hanging rail, so off the Bunnings, off to the supplier, Um and just you know, did it myself, and I, I enjoy it. It's just that I just don't get the time. But um, it's just very re rewarding when you're sitting in an office doing paperwork, sitting on a laptop, um, just to have that 
you know, doing some manual work. Yeah, having it's, an outlet. It's nice. So, but... Going back to Mr. and Mrs. Mujali, did they, um, uh, did, besides the family home, did they accumulate uh, any other properties? Yeah, we've got... Or was uh, it just the family? Yeah, no, no, I've got a fair few properties. Um, I've got an investment unit um, in Brisbane that I bought in 2007, so just before the peak of the market. So uh, up there, hasn't really gone down in value. Um, it's gone up a little bit the last sort of you know, three, four years, but for a long time it was flat. I just bought at the peak of the cycle, you know, didn't understand um, about timing and whatnot. Great investment, gives me six six and a half percent rental return so it's positive cash flow hasn't cost me a cent um so that's probably one of the the ones i got wrong um just timing wise not so much the the investment um and i've got uh, i've bought had a farm sold it um we've had other property and and sold like next to where we live um i've got a property in my super fund uh, i've got a commercial property as well up on the northern beaches um yeah i've got a fair few um properties that um that i hold at, at this current stage some in my wife's name some in my name some in joint names and one in the super fund um, as well so i'm looking at um acquiring another one um in the super fund in a in a couple of years and yeah, building yeah my property portfolio for for myself and also for the for the children because it's getting very very expensive um, and it just keeps getting more and more expensive. So um, I remember my parents bought our first property, a family home, the one in uh, in Auburn for forty thousand dollars back in nineteen eighty, I think thirty eight maybe even or twenty eight. Some it was under forty thousand dollars worth a million yeah. bucks now, but. You know, and then by the time I got into the market, um, yeah, you're you in know, a quarter of a million, weren't you? And now it's uh, yeah, sort sitting of around a million. Tw- Twenty years later, uh, it was like yeah, quarter of a million, and, and now obviously around that million dollar mark. It's just going to get harder and harder um, for um, to to get that equity because a you know twenty percent deposit on a million dollar house is two hundred thousand plus the stamp duty is probably about fifty. Um, so if you want to avoid LMI and can't get your parents' help, that's two hundred fifty thousand dollars that you. You need to save up. It's a significant um, sum of sum of money to come up with um, these days. Whereas when I bought my property, a twenty percent deposit with the stamp duty is probably you know, 50, 58 odd thousand or something like that. So, mind you, if you put it in the context of the income that you were earning back then compared to now, yep. Um, you know, it still you know it still wasn't a um, an amount to sneeze at, was it? No, when I committed to the property, I was earning you know about $60,000 a year. So my income was the same as roughly the 20% not before tax and that. But now, you know, to get that same property, um, same amount of deposit, that's $250,000. And not too many accountants, you know, three three years out of university are earning $250,000 these days. So it's just getting uh, a lot more um, significant, a lot more strain um, on people to save those deposits uh, based on, the incomes that they're earning and property just always outstrips income. So it's just going to get um, a lot more difficult to do that. The way in which our economy is structured ensures that's, that, that that occurs, doesn't it? I mean, we'll, we'll get onto that a little bit later. I wanted to ask you, what's the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome from an investment point of view? Yeah, probably just decisions to to sell. Like I'm not a fan of so like I had to sell a property um, sort of about, oh, when was it, about 10, 11 years ago in a great area. 
um, just simply because I was leaving the corporate life, starting my own business and needed the, the cash flow um, to substitute uh, not having an income for a couple of years. So I just wanted to relieve some debt and, and pay off my um, owner-occupied property, which we did. So we didn't have a home loan, which made it a lot easier um, to go to zero income and and start to um, you know change career and build a business. So that's probably the biggest challenge, like coming over that that hurdle. Is that because intrinsically you just didn't want to sell the property? You you saw the value of it and you you didn't want to let it go. Is that- yeah, that's pretty much it. Like um, and also like I wanted to you know obviously keep going, accumulating um, uh, properties. You know obviously you got to pay taxes, and next time you buy the stamp duty. So I think the transactional costs with buying and disposing of a property. Uh, fairly significant so for me it's sort of a like a waste of money because so, if i bought the same property again the next day i'm gonna have to pay you know sort of four or five percent stamp duty um conveyancing fees um so yeah, you got agents in and out yeah it's yeah so, it is an expensive asset to move isn't it it is it is so like i say to people like you know it's about 10 you know eight to ten percent um, changeover so you know whereas if i you know had a portfolio of stocks um it cost me mm. 100, 200 bucks to, yeah. to get rid of them all and, and cash 0. out. 0.06 to, that's it, to execute out. 0.06 to execute back in is pretty cheap. It's very cheap compared to compared to property. So that's probably one of the, like, the challenges. Um, you know, that was sort of weighing up, you know, what, what I wanted to do, that I want to stay working at corporate, stuck to a, stuck to a you know, job with a, with a company where they own your life and, you know, working long hours and um, basically building their business to hang on sell a property and that way i sort of gain my freedom so um so yeah so it was it's a bit of a weird one sort of people think you know you shackled to the property with debt but um i prefer to be um free in my in what i do and and living my life and you know I'm working and rather than um having no debt and being shackled to an employer what brought about the change what was the the catalyst that you decided that I no longer want to be a corporate citizen, so to speak, um, working in a large corporate entity. Um, what, what was it that, that brought you to that point where you, you were, no, I want to go and do something for myself and something involved in the investment sphere? Um, just to control my own destiny and not build someone else's business, I guess. Um, it was actually a personal thing that happened at the time where I needed to, I was traveling a lot for work. Um, I was working at American Express at the time and they just done a deal with David Jones. So they pulled us all out of our jobs and made us go basically interstate the whole time just to help people on the ground sign up merchants. And um, and I needed to be in Sydney for personal personal reasons. And um, they just know you have to, you have to go. And in the end, I, um, you know, they say, tell us why. And I'm like, I'm not, it's none of your business. And my manager goes, well, you're going to have to go. And I said, well, how about I tell one of the other employees I've got a f- sort of friendly relationship with and she'll tell you if it's a reason. And anyway, and um, in the end, I just walked in and said, here's my resignation. You don't owe me. Um, yeah. And I was sort of disappointed. And, and yeah, just built, like having that freedom to do what I love. Um, and it wasn't property, to be honest. I sort of left, started an IT business um, with some IT geeks and I was the salesman and they were the people, you know, implementing and loading the systems and servers. And and then I realised, you know, I was, I was good at the sales. They weren't so good at 
delivering on the on the promises and the equipment. And then I just thought I'm not going to go back to, to corporate and just wanted my freedom and sort of went and worked with a friend of mine, studied to be a financial planner and did some home loans and um, leasing, which I had a bit of experience in just to make ends meet. And yeah, so it was more just to gain my freedom. Um, I wouldn't say it was a passion for you know investing and 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 at the time. Um, but once I got into it, I realised, well, you can you know you can help people make a massive difference, and it started to drive my um, thirst for knowledge to work out what's the secret um, to you know in success, whether it's in shares or property or managed funds or structuring and and um, whatnot. So that sort of drove my interest in, in knowing everything I can about um, securing your future, investing, making money, you know, saving on tax, um, all that, all that. What would you say? Which led to property. <laughs> what, was, what would you say is um, the most crucial element that of that secret source? The most crucial element is what you is um, is having something aside to invest, um, not spending all all your money. Um, like when I was a young accountant, like I said, I not not one dollar. I was just living beyond my means, and I had a great salary at the time for someone my age. Um, so saving money, learning about the power of compounding. Um, so that's very important. Um, I remember when I was working at Medfin, which is part of the NAB, and one of the directors, he gave me the the book, The Richest Man in Babylon. Great um, book. And I, I love that book. Fantastic. And that's the secret. The Richest Man in Babylon is the secret. So you, you save part of your salary, like super, the government's enforcing it on you. Yeah. You invest it. You reinvest the earnings. The more you save, the more money you make. So if you save 10%, you're going to be X amount wealthy. If you can do 15, it, yeah, you'll be, you're X be a lot, lot better off. Yeah. Yeah, so just that that the discipline that comes along with that, um, and um, just taking control, like learning. Um, you don't have to do it all yourself, but it, it's good to understand what's going on um, and and how things work, and and um, you know how to maximize your returns um, for the least amount of risk is is probably the key. And I've um, and don't listen to research houses and mm. <laughs> and all that. Um, the biggest mistakes I've made on shares is, you know, studying stuff on Lonsec and getting reports into stocks and and um, a lot of them went broke. So um, yes, get get the information, but also take ownership and and understand um, for yourself what's going on in the world. One of the reasons, I mean, we do work together, Omar, is. Um, I'm particularly impressed with the due diligence process that you go through when selecting um, properties. Um, and as you said right at the outset that, um, you know, education and, and, and knowledge is absolutely key. Um, and you're absolutely right with regards to The Richest Man of Babylon. I think that is a sensational book um, that everyone should read. It's, the problem with it is so simple that most people, you know, don't um, don't do anything about it. Um, but from a business point of view, can you explain some of the pitfalls and some of the steps you take in your due diligence process when deciding whether an investment, um, whether a property meets an investment grade for you or not? 
um, so on a, on a micro level on the actual um, sort of. Well, you property. can go either way um, here because there's a lot. I mean, I know it's a very big question. We probably could have spent the entire podcast talking about this, and and maybe we might go into it a little bit deeper later on uh, in another episode. But um, yeah, I mean, start maybe with the macro because I mean the macro is as important as the micro in a lot of ways, isn't it? Uh, definitely, and that's something that I've personally um, learnt through being exposed to the 18-year cycle from um, yourself, Jeremy. So um, that's where it starts for me, and and that's something that was lacking in our business in my understanding and my um, you know education about the the property market, the economy, um, the stock market uh, previously. So I've always been good at picking. You know, good quality suburbs, good quality property, doing all the due diligence on that level. Um, but um, overlaying it with the macro is really, I think, taking our business and our service offering to another level. So to me, it starts with the macro, like what works, um, when, where, um, should, should you be buying? So you know, you've got a, yeah, let's just stick to Australia um, because that's what you know what we what we understand. But also, there's no reason not to invest in Australia. We've had a long period of economic prosperity. So, of developed countries, our we've had the best performing property market since 1975 um, of the developed world. So, so there's no reason not to look at Australia. Then look at it, why has that happened, and then looking at you know are we going to have that same economic prosperity moving forward? So, and then which areas are going to benefit from that economic prosperity? And to me, where do people want to live? Where's the, the jobs? And most of the jobs are in the service economy. They're generally based in, in the capital cities. The capital cities are growing quicker than the rest of Australia. So people are accumulating more and more in the capital cities. Um, so you've got good demand. You've got um, an educated quality workforce in diversified economies, working in multiple industries. And then I start to look at you know, where each city is um, in its cycle. Obviously, we favour the larger cities because um, they're growing better long-term. And then we look at timing for that for that market. And then once I've selected, say, okay, we're going to focus on Perth or we're going to focus on Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane or wherever it is, and then we look at, you know, where, do, where are the jobs? Where do people work? Um, where's the best infrastructure? Where are the universities? Where are the schools? And most of the time, that's generally closer to the CBD, um, you know, within reasonable commuting proximity, so that inner to middle middle ring. Um, and then it's about um, looking at the better quality um, suburbs, quality demographics. You want people on, you know, if I gave you a suburb, you know, with people with very high incomes, very highly educated, you're going to have good quality tenants. They're going to be in safe, secure jobs, earning good good money, so they can pay you the rent, but also you know, they'll want to buy that property off you um, in the future. So you're getting um, great demand from high-income earners in that area. And then you look at, um, you could have a cracking suburb, and this is the mistake that, well, you know, we've sort of made in the past. Um, there's just been a bit too much supply in that area. So long-term, it's not going to make a major difference, but over the short to medium term, it could impact um, your capital growth compared to other suburbs that are similar level without that without that supply. So, um, you know, supply and demand is, is very um, important to look at. And then and obviously the best streets, um, so the best can locations. Can I just, just jump in you know. right here? So this is, a, I think, an error that a lot of investors make is that 
it's at this point that they start doing their due diligence, isn't it? That they've neglected yeah. to think about the macro picture. That 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 whole um, concept of you know most property investors buy a property within two and a half kilometres of their own house because that's an area that they feel comfortable and that they know. Um, whereas that's got you, you know the the question should the first question should be is that the best place to be to be buying uh, a, an investment property? Well, a lot more can go wrong up to that level than can go wrong from then onwards. Um, if, if you, I like to look at it as a funnel, Jeremy. So, you know, if you're getting all the properties in Australia, throwing them through a filter, and then you're going through levels. So, okay, where am I going to buy? Regional or city? Okay, city. Okay, which city? And then, you know, just whereabouts in that city and why, and just keep keep funneling. And what you're doing with that is. It's not a foolproof system. Um, it's it's better than other systems. It's probably the best system um, that you can you can put together. But it's just de de risking it and giving you the the most chance of um, you know success. Which is success to me is the property goes up in value. Um, that's that's how I measure success um, in property. So capital growth and you know, most people forget about that level. They just for whatever reason, whether it's the suburb they live in or it's somewhere they've travelled to before or they've got a friend that lives there or, you know, they they used to work in that area, whatever the um, the trigger to pick that particular location is or they heard something or they saw something on the news um, and then they start from there down. They don't go back up and say, you know, is this suburb the place I should be buying in yeah, at is this, this particular city the point right in time? spot? Is this state the right spot? What's yeah. happening from a... Um a political and economic point of view of the economy. It's, it, it is amazing, isn't it? And as you said, that, that is a fantastic line, though, that there's a lot more that can go wrong to that point than there can from the next point yep. onwards, getting down to the micros. Great example is Darwin or Perth. You know, like you could go to a cracking suburb in Perth, buy a property eight years ago, and you're down 20 25%. Um, you know, in Darwin, it could be 40 Fifty percent. So, uh, mining towns could be <laughs> 90, 95%. So, yeah, property's great. Suburbs fantastic. Just the timing and the where you bought it was was wrong. Um, and it's the same in Sydney. Like people that are bought at the peak, it's going to take them six, seven, eight years to to um, start to get decent decent growth. Um, but suburbs fine. Property's fine. Everything from that level down, tick tick the boxes, but they're not going to be able to build that equity to get the next one, and that's that's the key. You're limited to what you can borrow, um, and you want to get those factors right to allow you to start to build capital growth in that property. And then below that is what you know you're getting the, you know, no headaches. You're getting um, decent rental growth and the right type of property size, quality, who built it. Um, some a lot of people will fo might focus on parts of that. But, um, which is good, important, but to get to that level is a lot more important. So due diligence, what's more important, um, uh, the outlook and orientation of a property or the quality of the build? It's a hard one to, um, to say. Um, for different aspects, each one would, would be different. Um, you know, if you're um, – quality of build is, is important. Um, that's more um, from your cost-wise, like what's going to cost you to, to hold that 
um, particular particular property in um, orientation and all that. It's all it's a hard one to say, Jeremy. Um, you know, if you buy one looking into a wall in another building, that obviously you can't fix that. That's not going to change. But if you you know, bought a house and it's got, you know, a little bit of structural issues that you can fix, it's not too much of a, a major problem. But if you bought in a building that's sinking or you, you've you gone out to, uh, what's that area in Sydney that I think Lindley's built and it's, the whole suburb is sinking um, at the moment. It's built on the tip. So you can't really fix that. So, um, yeah, you could have a great house that's overlooking, you know, the, the recreational reserve in that suburb, but if you're, the land sinking. You're in a bit of strife, aren't not you? Help you. So that I was think, a bit of a maybe an unfair yeah, question so, <laughs> to make you try and get you to split them, but it, yeah, look, aspect and all that, Jeremy. It's all priced. Like you know, you, you get something with you know on the on the beach with views. You're paying for that. You get something in that same suburb that you know doesn't have that. It's looking into another house, and you're not paying that premium for it. Um, yes, the one on the beach will probably grow more um, than the other one moving forward, but yeah, I think build quality and um, and fundamentals of, of that is very, very important, especially with apartments um, that you can't easily rectify yourself. So if it's if it's a house, a lot, e- lot easier to fix, townhouse, um, as you get into bigger, bigger high-rise, you know, 100-level, 50-level um, building, it's it's a lot harder to fix than a five-level building. So, um, yeah, build quality is very important. I guess part of the reason I kind of asked the question was to make the point a little bit that, there's that old, um, uh, you know, land baron saying it's all about location, 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 and and we would absolutely subscribe to that. But most people, when they hear that, they just think about, you know, whereabouts on the street, you know, whereabouts on the street is it located? They don't think about part of that locational value being, you know, what's the the subsoil underneath. Um, and you know some of those other aspects that can have you know quite um, significant impacts. Um, you know the location, you know from our point of view, can be impacted a lot by the way in which society lives around it. Um, and as you said, it's very important to be able to match the demographics to the property. So um, you know making sure that you know cafes and 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 lifestyle um, opportunities are are placed in the right um, in the right suburbs. Um, or suburbs that should have those sort of um, amenities that don't. I mean, they can have a very big impact on the outcome of uh, the growth of a property. Yeah, especially these days. Like 20 years ago, no one cared where the cafe was and and whatnot. There was other factors that they looked at. Um, 40 years ago, when my parents bought the property, they looked for the Catholic school and you know, that's where they wanted us. But, you know, people coming from Asia and the subcontinent don't care so much for Catholic and Anglican schools. They want government uh, schools, quality, selective government schools. So, you know, those those requirements of what people need and infrastructure lifestyle um, can change over, over time. So, um, yeah, location is key. Um, and location from a – you're an investor, like – you know, obviously, a, a property in two racks going to attract a much higher rental. But maybe the yield at times um, is not not as high for premium property. But um, you know, you know, you, there's a lot of high income earners there with the ability to pay rent for a long period of uh, sustained uh, over a long period of time. You go to some locations where you know you're in a regional town and the you know, all the jobs are in the flour mill, and that flour mill shuts down, then you're in. You're in strife 
um, trying to find um, income earners that can pay the rent um, and income earners that can buy that property should you wish to sell it. So um, from a location, that's important uh, in terms of a demographic and, and where, where that property and who demands it and what what level of um, incomes and, and that that they earn as well. When evaluating um, an investment opportunity, what's the one resource that you use most often? Um, Australian Bureau of Statistics is probably the key, especially looking at something boring. new like a suburb or, or whatnot. Uh, it is, but it can tell you a lot about a suburb. So, um, yeah, looking at what people do, what incomes they earn, how many kids they have, how many cars they drive, um, what type of size property they prefer, um, you know, the industries, their education levels, um, ethnicity. Um, it gives you a lot of um, valuable information and it just gives me a good picture of um, the quality of the suburb, quality of the people that live there. Um, obviously, we, we travel up and or if it's in interstate or if it's in Sydney, then generally sort of I know the areas. But, you know, I'll go there, sit at, sit at the cafe, sit at the bus stop, look at the quality of the um, of the people that, you know, live there and also the people that are coming into that area um, as well. So um, that's very important. If you've got a massive Westfields, it could be attracting a lot of petty crime and people from outside the suburb. So you, you might not want to live too close to that um, piece of infrastructure as well. So, um, yeah, very important to look at the, the demographics are, are key. It's interesting, isn't it, that... Um, um... You know, this is one of the things that I really like about your approach is it's both a statistical um, as well as a you know touch and feel that I mean there nothing beats getting out on the street and having a look but you're absolutely right that the information that can be gained um, looking at those dull and boring statistics uh, can be invaluable it's very efficient <laughs> if I've got to jump on a plane and fly there and yeah, it's, it's uh you know, it's a lot lot more time-consuming. But the numbers, you know, I know I've had clients, say I had a client that went, was going to buy in Kabulcha some dual key for a stupid amount of money. Um, and obviously he'd been given the brochures and flown up there and a the developer took him around and was some house of land package through a spruker. And, and then I came back and I said, the easiest thing for me to do, I just jumped online and I said, what's the median house price? I think it was three three fifty at the time. And he was paying about five fifty six hundred for this dual key house of land package, overpriced rubbish. And I said, okay, let's have a look. Sixty percent of the people rented in that area. And I said to him, what type of person can't afford to buy a three three fifty thousand dollar property to to live in? And then we started to draw down on their in incomes were really low, um, a lot of labourers, lowly skilled jobs, and just went through the demographics. And he said, wow, like showed him a, a, another suburb. Um, for a similar price point to what he was buying. I said, look at the quality of that and look at the quality of that. He's like, oh, wow, they didn't tell me that. I said, would you buy it if you knew that? And he's like, no. Um, and that's a very easy way to judge the, the quality um, of a suburb. And, you know, maybe the rental yields, you know, in Turak or a Mossman in Sydney or, a, you know, like an exclusive um you know, Belimba in Brisbane or, or wherever might not be as high as the rental return in, in other suburbs, but you're going to get very good capital growth in those in those areas. And that's proven over the, over the long but it term. It highlights something too that is really important for us to remember, and that is that a real estate agent is engaged by the vendor, that they're 
duty of care lies with the vendor and um, their ability to sell the property. It, they don't have a duty of care to the borrower um, because of the, um, uh, the agency relationship between the two. Uh, that's correct. They just need the buyer to, f- to facilitate the process. So obviously the buyer is important to buy the property, um, but they work for, legally work for the for the vendor. And um, that's just the way it is. It's They're selling uh, a property, a commodity, an asset um, that you know, needs to be sold by someone. So um, yeah, their loyalty lies with the vendor. Um, so it's up to you, to the buyer, to do their to do their homework. Um, you know, it's or you find someone that that can do it for you. And then you go another step with regards to uh, the real estate agent is that most typically they are a local agent, um, which makes sense from the way in which their business is conducted from their end. But a local agent mm-hmm. is only going to be familiar with the local area. Um, and misses out for a start on any of that macro view that we spoke about before, um, let about let alone any competing suburbs. Uh, exactly right. You're they're they're expert. Like if you want to sell a property or you're looking to buy in that particular suburb for some reason to live or whatever, the best source is the is the local agent, obviously, because they're seeing everything happen on the ground. They know where everything is. Um, in terms of infrastructure, amenities, schools. So they're an expert in that local area. But I don't find any local agents knowing much about in property investing um, and the fundamentals and things that you that you look for. So they're more you know, experts in just the transaction. Um, and a lot of the times they're dealing with owner-occupiers, not, not so much um, investment fundamentals um, as well. But on the flip side, Jeremy, I've had seen disaster stories with buyers agents and some of the most famous buyers agents in Australia. Um, and I've had, you know, mortgage brokers that do loans for them tell me um, um, about the negatives. I've heard from rental agents um, tell me about the negatives with buyers agents. So they go in and buy this property that so it doesn't suit the client's needs. It's a wreck and they just sort of leave them, don't even help them with the rental. Um, and the, the buyer's stuck there. Um, with a sort of a limit of a property that they need to spend significant money fixing up and um, to get it ready for rent. Um, and I've heard of, you know, disaster stories where people are bought in really bad areas, bought the wrong property, all through some buyer's agent that um, they advertise that they're investment experts. But, um, you know, there's great buyer's agents that are better than us, like at the transaction. So there's two levels in property like there's the transaction buy sell local agent buyer's agent um you know it's it's a different type of fundamental then you've got the investment side where you know you, you need to know how the property market operates before you can um, give advice on on that side of it you hinted earlier um with regards to um you know starting to understand or, or you you know coming across the 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 property cycle and the drivers um, over the span of you know twenty odd years that you've been involved in the property market. Um, what are the most significant things that have impacted on your philosophy? I think first, as an investor, the first ten years it was just what I experienced myself um, and saw opportunities missed. Um, that that type of information. Um, 
to, like I, I'm not just saying this because Count of Flack is very you know involved in the 18 years, but that's been the biggest eye opener for me um, uh, over the last sort of 20 years. And I wish I knew, not just in terms of the cycle, but I definitely wish I knew that 18 years ago. Um, I, you know, I wish I knew about the power of compounding. You know, 25 years ago and and yeah, 20 years ago. So. Um, Everything I know now, I wish I knew before. But the the main thing I wish I knew from the from the start is a, is about the the cycle and the market and how predictable um, it is, and the importance of buying when the market's cheap, like when the opportunity to buy is uh, versus buying when everyone else is generally buying, which is ninety nine percent of the time the peak of the market. So, yeah, to me that's the most important thing. And, and you know, Jeremy, I had a business partner in this when we started this business nine years ago. They were exposed to the cycle, same as me, but, and to this day still don't believe in it, take an interest in it, um, utilise it to assist their clients. So, um, yeah, that's the biggest thing for me. Yeah, that the way the cycle works and, and the drivers are just, um, you know, when when you come to understand how they work, it it is exceptionally powerful, isn't it? It's... Um, it, it, it allows you, I think, um, in fact, maybe I need to ask you the question, you know, uh, would I be correct or to be putting words in your mouth by saying that it just increases your investment and decision-making confidence? A hundred percent. Just gives me a roadmap to the future. It gives me that crystal ball that, um, you know, so valuable. Like if I could tell you who's going to win the Melbourne Cup, you know, or at least three horses that'll definitely win um the melbourne cup in a couple of weeks like how valuable is that inf- information it's like to me it's it's you know like a not just a you know proven plan of the future but a proven plan of the past it's a, the, the track record it's like going to the races and just blindly picking a horse or do i look at their form guide look at it you know which one runs better in you know the wet and and it just gives you a lot more information to give you that confidence to to bet on that bet on that winner and it just starts to me it has to start there um we describe it as a framework of thinking that it, it creates a framework of thinking to understand um the information that's being presented to you whether it's in the media whether it's about um you know vacancy rates whether it's what an agent's telling you or whatever it it, it allows you to collect all that information and understand and filter that within the context of the cycle because we know that um, things ebb and flow within the cycle uh, and we know that certain things will be said or emphasised at different points in the cycle. Definitely. And also it just gives you, like I said, the the macro level. You you need to do more homework but it allows you to understand what type of homework you need to do. So if if I come in this point in time in Australia and think, the property markets, obviously, I'm looking at the cycle. It's not going to crash. And I say, great, I'm just going to go buy in Sydney. No, there's more fundamentals that I need to look at, um, see where you know what stage of Sydney cycle is Sydney in and what are the economic drivers in, in Sydney and what's happened to the property market recently and where's the opportunity like, you know. It's, if you just go, you know, that's the cycle, I'm going to go buy property, bang, just go buy anywhere. Um, but it just gives you that that starting point, that confidence to think, yeah, time's right, and then I now need to go find out where and what and how and 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 do the rest of the homework. But it all feeds back into that cycle. Um, so okay. how important how important Omar is the role of the banks 
Uh, very important, Jeremy. <laughs> of, uh, yeah, critical. Uh, and to me, it's not so much interest rates. I don't think interest rates play um, as a major part in the availability of credit. And that's another thing I've learned um, from looking at the cycle and understanding why it manifests in that way. So um, to give you an example, we used to have a sub-business, as you knew, used to supply um, sort of um, agents that deal with investors from overseas, just like a, a wholesale sort of channel. And, and that just came to a halt when just on the rumour that um, the, the banks um, in Australia are going to stop lending to overseas investors and there's going to be a, restrict, a restriction in capital outflow. And had it happened, just the, the thought of it, of that policy restriction in terms of credit and the whole market just came, you know, to a grinding halt. So, um, yeah, very important, the availability of credit, um, and you're seeing that happening at the moment um, with the changes there to responsible lending. It's just going to increase the availability of, of money, which will feed a frenzy um, in the property market and create that bubble over the next seven, eight years. Well, that's what we're looking for, isn't it? To um, to uh, to create another bubble. Um the drivers, you know, we define our our five drivers as, you know, technology, um, population, infrastructure, the government grant license, and and of course credit. Do you do you see those playing out in the property market? Would you agree that they are essentially the five um, uh, the five things that drive the property credit and um, economic cycle? Without a doubt, they drive economic prosperity, and that's. Um pretty much what it comes down to when you have um, growth in, in property, um, all very important. And, um, yeah, you've got to piece it together and look look for for all of them, I guess, and, and factors of, um, of all of them. How many of your investors would truly understand the concept of how, how – all productivity gains have to end up manifesting back into the land price. Do you think many actually understand that concept? Well, yeah, we promote it. We speak about it. Um, we do, you know, a lot of education and webinars and um, and that on it. Um, to be honest with you, even with all that, I'd say maybe less than five percent would. Truly understand it. It's amazing, yeah, isn't truly it? Truly understand it and get their yeah. head around I, it. Um, and I can accept that because it is it is a confronting sort of concept in a lot of ways, isn't it? Um, and it does challenge some, some motherhoods that we're led to believe. Um, and it does also um, challenge our own economic structure in some ways as to whether it's a good thing or not. And that's, you know, an argument on not interested in getting involved in at all. Um, but it is, it is interesting, isn't it? That, um, that, it, that, that even when you tell people about it, that it takes, you know, quite some time for them to really understand the cycle and really understand why the cycle has to occur because of the manifestation of productivity gains in the land prices. It's something that we've never, no one's been taught. Like I went for university and studied and yeah, never came across it. I've worked. It's amazing. Isn't I've it? worked with financial planners, or you know, for the last fifteen years, and accountants, and mortgage brokers. So people in banking and that, 
and none of them, the only ones that see it are generally the ones that get exposed to it through myself and, and yourself. And um, I've got a lot of financial planners now that um, been working with us for many years, but just over the last sort of three, you know, probably last four years, I've been um, sort of speaking a lot more about the cycle to people and clients and financial planners and accountants that we work with. And they're all, you just can't doubt it. If you're in, if you've got your eyes open and you're in the industry and looking out for it, um, eventually you're going to see it. So, um, so for us, it's more, we just want to be more proactive, keep talking about it, um, keep showing people, giving them examples, you know, dispelling the myths that are out there um, that um, come out in the media from government, from property gurus, from, you know, um, investment experts. It's um, and, and not all of it is wrong. Like just, you know, like people tell you population growth, in, you know, it leads to, it does, but that's on the back of economic prosperity. Like, you know, you could. There are a lot of half truths, yeah. aren't there? There's, there's a lot of things that they they they're true, but in certain contexts, um, or they make half they a do. statement. Um, and if they put the other half, it would be absolute. But because they don't, it you know, it's it, it's it's, it's sometimes like works. population growth. You could be in a third world country they're all having to five ten kids but if they can't feed them they can't educate them they can't get jobs there's no economic prosperity that's not going to lead to a significant boom in land values but if you're in a developed country like australia and we're getting good migration it's probably the population growth is a lot less than some of these third world countries but we've had a major land boom over the last 45 years and it's on the back of you know economic prosperity so yeah population is important population growth, but that's not the be all. Or, you know, you go to a, you look at the fastest growing suburbs in Australia in terms of population, they're generally um, house and land or um, areas saturated with apartments because they're just pumping properties out. Obviously, yeah. people are going to live in those properties, in the, yeah. especially in a capital city. Um, eventually, you know, they're going to get filled. So if you just look at population growth, you go, oh, that area, I'm going to go invest in that area. And it's, probably the one of the worst ones to buy in um, in that in that city I think when we talk about population being one of our drivers um, I think of all the drivers that's the one that's most misunderstood as to what we mean I mean technology you know is fairly um, front and center um, uh, you know, the, the obviously government granted licenses, um, credit growth, etc. Um, infrastructure also is fairly easy, but population people just think of the growth. Whereas, it, as you've just said, it, it's more than just growth. It's how society, um, how we um, assimilate, how we live our lives. You know, what's important to us, what infrastructure is important to us. Um, and you know how we want to spend our uh, our time. So it's more than just population growth. You know, I completely agree that thinking of population growth for you know population as a driver is is a bit of a misnomer. It, it all is. Everything in isolation um, will be. Um, you just got to put it all together. If I go back to the beginning and you were to start again, what is the one thing that you would change? Um, I'd save more my, my money early on in life. I wish I'd um, bought property 
and invested in general a lot earlier in life. Even when I was, um, you know, in university studying, I used to work part-time and, and make more than probably the average person earned at that time. And I used to just blow it all. So if I could go back, yeah, that, that'd that be the first thing. Um, not so much what, what type of investment or whatnot, just the fact that, you know, I wish I'd read the Richest Man in Babylon when I was 17 years old and really understood it and not just understood it, but lived it. Um, from that point in time, I'd, I'd be so much more wealthy. Um, and at this point in time, yeah, that's probably the one thing I'd change. The ability to control your cash flow is absolutely paramount. 100%. Like I said, absolutely. I've come across people that earn, you know, a million, two million dollars a year um, and have net assets in the negative, just bad debt, you know, stupid type debt. And, um, and I've met people that have probably never earned more than forty thousand in their in their life. Obviously, a lot of them are retired now. But um, like in comparison to a job today, people that used to wash dishes, uh, work at a you know as a doorman and at an RSL club, um, and own multiple properties because they understood that they understood about living within your means. Yeah, obviously you're gonna you're gonna have a lifestyle and you want to have fun, and um, we're probably not going to be as strict as us on ourselves as what our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were, but you can have a great lifestyle, um, you know, live sensible and learn the power of saving, investing and the power of compounding. That's that's the main thing I'd change um, if I could go back in time. Probably would have been a good point to, uh, to leave there, but I've got to ask you one more question and that is what is the craziest property investment that you've seen or the craziest action by an investor craziest that i've seen that's a tough one um i don't know if i can answer that one (laughs) like uh to pick a winner um i had one recently um i met this guy probably three four years ago and he just recently probably six, nine months ago, sold the, sold it. But he he bought a house and, or not even a house, like a, um, a in the Newcastle region, listened to some property, young guy owns 50 properties, always on TV and on breakfast TV and, and, and all that. Um, bought an unregistered um, house and land block that wasn't titled, um, sat there, during a, a boom, um, waiting for it. He was told he could build a duplex on it. It was a corner block um, triangle uh-huh. with an easement. So there was no way in in hell that you'd be able to it would fit. have been an interesting looking duplex. Um, yeah, very strange. Um, he was told you could put four bedroom duplex. He probably could have put a, two, two bedrooms. but um, And this guy's a doctor, very intelligent. Um, so... Um, yeah, and he just held it and held it and held it. And I referred him to some people that could, you know, that builders and a couple of them came up with some designs. And um, in the end, he just, after holding this thing for like five, six years, got sick of it, sold it. I think he copped about a 80 grand loss on it um, during a time when that market on the back of Sydney um, had appreciated in, in value. So that buyer's agent, buyer's agent, he probably got paid from the... Um, the vendor as well, but charged him fifteen thousand um, dollars, and yeah, he's lost eighty thousand um, dollars on something that just didn't work from 
any perspective um, at all. So, um, what's the reality? Is it hard to build? A- I mean, there's risks attached to it, isn't there? There's there's plenty of risks. There is I- involved in in owning property. The trick is to to define them and mitigate as many in advance. As you can. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's the the key. That, you know, you've heard the saying: you make your money when you when you buy the property, and I, I believe in that definitely. Um, what you look at and and consider up up and what what you learn and know and consider and and utilize up front is key um, to to making money out of uh, property. So um, yeah, I've seen some other weird ones. Oh, that, well, that's one that just came up. Um, so they got everything wrong from you know the, the area, the um, suburb, the, the block of land, the everything didn't you know the easements and the being a corner like triangular block like it's just um just a comedy of errors really isn't it yeah but you know these these people on tv their buyer's agent you pay them low risk um and they just got no idea and they're just just unethical um rip-off merchants and like i said they you know get all this airplay on television um yeah i've seen a lot lot of um crazy weird and wonderful um properties that's probably not so crazy and weird but just the just all the circumstances and the critical things and very highly intelligent um person but they just don't know like they're an expert at what they do i remember i had a client who was a surgeon and he said to me i when it comes to property i'm a donkey and i said well doctor when it comes to surgery i'm a bigger donkey so you know you do what you do best and let me do what i do best and as long as it all makes sense and um, you know, we'll teach you. I'll go do it, but I, I want to prove to you what I'm doing um, is right. So just stick to what you do best. Work hard, save your money, and get in a position to invest. Are there any other parting words you'd like to um, uh, to leave with our listeners? Um, no, not really. Um, I think the you're in good hands. I'm not just saying this. Like I deal with a lot of financial plan, a lot of accountants and and the better ones, um, the better picks, but um, you're in good hands with um, Count and Flack for the, for the pure understanding of the cycle. That's the, the biggest difference. Yes, there's difference. I know you're great at um, with your SMAs and, and whatnot and your, your funds and that fantastic, but um the key thing to me, again, comes back to the cycle. So nothing different, just a different way to, to phrase the importance of um, not just you understanding, but having people that, um, you know, your lender, your financial planner, your accountant, your property person, all that understand how the cycle works and how it all fits together, I think is is the key. It's super important, isn't it? When you all get on the same page and, um, you know, everyone's understanding um, as you said, from from the client, the 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 advisor, the um, the property expert, the, the lender, etc., even the solicitor, it makes it a lot easier when everyone's on the same page, understanding you know how the um, uh, you know understanding the approach. It it leads to a much better um, much better outcome. Yeah, and not just that, but also like on highly ethical people, um, everyone work together to get the result. Um, and look after the client. So, um, yeah, you know, understanding investment fundamentals is important, especially when it comes to the cycle, but also um, dealing with people that have your best interest and um, just good ethics in general. Well, one of your first uh, answers um, involved the word trust, 
Omar um, right up front. And I think that um, says a lot, actually, because, you know, it is important that um, there's trust between all parties um, to ensure that uh, we create a great outcome. Omar, it's been great having you on um, on our podcast today. If people want to get in contact with you, how's the best way? I mean, I'll put your contact details in the show notes, of course, but how would they go about um, getting in contact with um, Omar Mojali? Uh, the easiest way is just to jump on our website, examineproperty.com.au, um, all through the team at Count and Flack um, as well. Um, yeah, if they want, they can send Don't forget in. when you jump on that website <laughs> to um, make sure you check out the examiners as well. That's a very important part of that website, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, it's all, we're all having a go here, Omar. That's the great thing about all this, uh, all this sort of education and social media. It's been great having you, mate. I really do um, appreciate, um, uh, appreciate you coming on uh, and giving us your words of wisdom because it, um, you know, it is a super important topic. Of course, for any of our listeners out there, um, you know, if we'd love to help you um, together uh, on your property journey. So jump onto the website, um, PAFO, P-A-F-O. So that's the acronym for Property Australia's Favourite Obsession.com.au. Of course, don't forget to like, subscribe or leave us a rating. Omar, been great having you on. I'll see you next time. Until then, we will, of course, keep obsessing about property. Cheers, Jeremy. You've been listening to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. Any opinions, views or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and should be considered general in nature as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. Count and Flack may have a commercial relationship with some guests appearing on this podcast. Your host, Jeremy Cownan and Cownan Flack Proprietary Limited are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713.